This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled, In the Beginning Was the Word, recorded December 25, 1991, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Today, of course, uh, is Christmas, one of the primary Christian holidays celebrating the birth of Jesus. At the Center, uh, we regard Jesus as a, a great Gnostic, one who's uh, enlightened and a great prophet, and even in a certain uh, sense, you could say a God-human, a God-realized person in the Indian sense of the word. Uh, so we have utmost respect for Jesus and the teachings, and we use them. The only perhaps difference we have with most Christians, anyway, is that we don't believe Jesus was the only kid on the block, that uh, to each culture uh, has its prophets and its um, uh, great spiritual teachers. Uh, and we honor them too. So we are not exclusive in that sense, and I suppose a lot of Christians wouldn't consider us Christians for that reason. However, in, in, the, in the sense that Gandhi said, uh, when asked what his religion was, he said, I'm a Christian, I'm a Jew, I'm a Hindu. Uh, in that sense, uh, we would say we were Christians. And uh, the birth of Christ should be celebrated from our point of view. Christ was a great spiritual teacher and really defined spirituality in the in the West, in Europe, and in uh, Eastern Europe, for 2,000 years. He gave a teaching that developed into a cosmology, and uh, most spirituality was expressed in terms of that cosmology. So if we want to, though, get to the root of this teaching, and if we want to try and see what there is in this teaching that's of value to us today, because lots has, uh, has changed, and often the cosmology of Christendom no longer speaks to us as a formal cosmology. We don't really live in the same world, for instance, that um, a European of uh, the middle of the 13th century lived in. Uh, so much has changed, and there's so much of the cosmology that is no longer seems relevant to our life. But is the, is the teaching, is the core teaching still relevant in some way? And how could we uh, understand it today? So let's go back to the... Uh, the original teaching, at least as it comes down to us. And uh, we'll go back to the Gospel of St. John, which is uh, perhaps of all the Gospels the most mystical. And I just want to read you the opening verses of the Gospel of St. John, and then talk about them a little bit, and then we'll have a little discussion about it. Now, the Gospel of St. John, uh, was, as all the Gospels, were uh, was written in Greek. I don't know if all of you know that. And the terms, particularly in the Gospel of St. John, are terms borrowed from Greek philosophy, which itself has a, an ancient tradition going back uh, a thousand years before Jesus. So the interesting thing about the Christian cosmology is that it was a sort of a marriage between the Hebrew cosmology and the Greek cosmology, especially as developed by Plato and that, that branch of Greek uh, philosophy and cosmology. Uh, so the uh, terms here, some of them I'm going to go back to the original Greek. I don't read or speak original uh, ancient Greek, but I've read something about it, and at least according to these authors and experts, I'm going to try and give you an interpretation of what some of these words meant in the original Greek as St. John wrote them. But first, let me just read through it here slowly and uh, go through the whole, whole first several verses, and then we'll go back and start trying to figure out what this might mean to us today. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of that light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as he received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed on his name, which were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. One of the most beautiful passages, I think, in the Bible, even uh, uh, even though it has a, a lot of mystery in it. So, let's go back here and go through this uh, slowly and see what we can make of this. First of all, it says, in the beginning. Every sacred cosmology begins in the beginning. The, uh, Of course, the Old Testament begins. In the beginning, uh, God said, let there be light, for instance. And uh, even in uh, primitive mythologies, they begin in the beginning. In the beginning, there's some creator or, or some, uh, some explanation of how the world comes into being. They can uh, vary quite a bit. Uh, they will use different images and symbols. Uh, they might be uh, an image, a sexual image. A lot of creating a creation myths are a myth of uh, some sort of uh, sexual union. Uh, usually it's interesting, usually it's either a virgin birth or some sort of incestuous union, because you begin with a one, so there aren't two there. For instance, there's a delightful one in Hinduism, and that is that in the beginning was the self, just the self, with a capital S. And the self realized, I'm alone. And so the self then created a female, a feminine. Actually, the original self is not male or female, but when the, as soon as the self creates a female, there's male and female. And then the self, uh, the male self, uh, tries to unite with the female self. But she's rather coy. And so he sort of runs after her, and she changes into a cow. So he changes into a bull. And she changes into a doe. So he changes into a stag. And uh, through this process, all of life comes into being. Their offspring keep being generated. So all of, it's a wonderful myth. All of life, this whole variety, comes from this one little uh, love play. It's a lovely, lovely myth. But it almost always begins with this single one. Now, there's another thing about in the beginning here that we, uh, underst- we have to understand from a mystical point of view. We can take this story uh, exoterically at our lowest level of understanding and think it refers to some sort of beginning in time. And, of course, this is the way uh, most, not only probably most Christians, but most people in sacred cultures take their myths. Somewhere long ago, in the beginning. In, uh, in Christendom, actually, uh, several uh, doctors of the church or whatnot have, tried, have actually tried to plot this out following the generations, and they arrived at some year, I've forgotten what it was, but like 4,010 uh, B.C. was the beginning. But this presents us with a little bit of a problem, because as St. Augustine uh, was, uh, had to deal with, the question arises, uh, what was God doing before then? I mean, for all eternity, he was just sitting around. And why would suddenly in 4010, or whatever the year was, God decide to create uh, this creation? And at least all sorts of horrible theological problems, because if God is complete in, in himself or itself and doesn't need anything, then why should God suddenly create something out there? And then this particular, why this particular time? And all forever, why just this particular time? And uh, in fact, uh, St. Augustine's answer to that question, or at least it's uh, a sort of apocryphal story, was God, in all that time before the beginning, God was creating hell for people who ask questions like that. (laughs) But actually... uh, we have to understand in the beginning here as in the beginning of time itself, which is a, a very uh, uh, hard one to get your mind around. Does time have a beginning? If, if time has a beginning, then there is no before time. This presents, uh, again, awful philosophical paradoxes. Kant dealt with them and actually showed that there could not be any beginning of time and yet time could not be uh, boundless either. <coughs> so you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't, if you take that position. 
Where does time begin? Now, time can't begin in time, obviously. From a mystical point of view, time is, if you like, and we're still using images here because we can't help but do that, is generated out of eternity. And eternity is not time going on endlessly. As Joseph Campbell said so rightly, eternity has nothing to do with time. So time is something that gets generated out of eternity. It doesn't start at some point because you have to have time to have some point to start it. If you like, if you want to say in the beginning, the beginning of time is always now. Eternity is always now. There is no other true time but now. And that's an eternal now. And this is something you can check in your own experience here. And all these things, by the way, you can check in your own experience. And this is one of the differences between uh, mystics and uh, theologians. That you don't have to take the teachings on blind faith. You take them as guides and you go check and see if they're true. How many, what other time do any of you know but now or have ever experienced? If you have a memory, where is it happening? And what time is it happening? It's happening now. If you're speculating about the future, where you're going to take your vacation next summer. I used to say you're going to go off to Hawaii, and Jennifer told me this crowd doesn't go to Hawaii, so I've lowered my sights a little. You're going to go down to Carmel or, or out to the coast, maybe to Florence. Well, you're, you're thinking, all right, next week I'm going to Florence, but where is that uh, fantasy taking place now? In, in sort of pop, modern, uh, new age teachings, they're always telling you to, to be in the present. I defy anybody not to be in the present. You're always in the present. Even if you've had some experience that you interpret as returning to uh, the past, let's say Egypt, in 2000 and you were a princess in Egypt, everybody who's ever had reincarnation or memories is always a princess in Egypt or a prince in Egypt. You know, they're never a, a rag picker in the, in the streets of Baghdad or something. <laughs> When you're there, you're still in now. <clears throat> you're always in the now. In the beginning is always now. And the world is always being created now. Through the now. By the way, I just want to say, this is not some uh, Eastern interpretation that I've put on a Western teaching. If you read the Christian mystics, like Meister Eckhart and so forth, you will see that's exactly how they interpret it. This is where the eternal now comes from. That expression comes to us from Christian mystics. So what, what is in this, this sort of the, the ground of the present? Time is something relative that is created out of the present. What resides in this ground? What is this ground? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now the, Two Greek terms here are theos and logos. God is theos. Logos is the word. Logos is a very, very interesting word, Greek word. Logos means word, among other things, but it also means proportion, ratio, numbers, counting, division, distinction. It's a much broader concept than our use of the word word. And it has a history that goes all the way back at least as far as Pythagoras and Heraclitus, who said that the fundamental principle of the universe was logos. It's very interesting. It's very paradoxical, their writings, particularly Heraclitus, because, and, and modern scholars can't figure it out, because at times he seems to be talking about the logos as something objective, like an objective order in the universe. And at times he seems to be talking about the logos as something subjective. As though somehow 
the subjective side of things creates all this. Of course, of course modern scholars can't understand that complete, uh, at all, so they, they try to uh, interpret it purely in an objective sense. But it isn't, truly speaking, in Greek thought. It's something that transcends subject and object. It's the logos of your own thinking, and it's also the logos that we see in the world, the order of that we see in the world. Lots of interesting words come from it. Logic, for instance, comes from this word logos. It's a very mysterious concept. How could we think of this today? We could take logos to be something like the power of imagination, the power to distinguish. I use imagination in a very technical sense, to make an image, to take something that's whole and to sort of uh, draw lines on it and divide it up, create boundaries. Again, this goes back to early uh, Greek ideas that uh, in the beginning was the apirion, the void, the boundless, the limitless. And that the logos creates limits and boundaries within this void. This is not, however, specifically a Greek idea or even a Western idea. If we jump uh, all the way across the globe to a completely different culture at about the same time, in, in, in relative time, to China, around 500 BC, we find Lao Tzu talking about the Tao. Now, there's an interesting thing about the word Tao. The word Tao has two meanings. It means the way, the, the path, the way. It also means to speak, the word. And so Lao Tzu begins his little uh, his Tao uh, Te Cheng with a little pun. He says, the Tao which can be Taoed is not the true Tao. The way which can be spoken of is not the true way. And then he goes on to say that the nameless is the beginning, in the beginning, of heaven and earth, two primal distinctions. And the named is the mother of all of the myriad things, myriad creatures. Naming is somehow the mother of all of this. It's through naming through that other meaning of Tao. So, the one hand, the Tao can't be named. On the other hand, the Tao is the power of naming, the power of distinction, the power of imagination. And then he winds up by saying, these two, the nameless and the named, are one, and diverge in name only. That they're not a true duality here, that somehow they're, they're different aspects of the same thing. It's a little bit like the idea of complementarity in modern physics, where you can't describe reality with one concept. You have to use two contradictory concepts, particle and wave. Reality cannot be both particle and wave at the same time, logically, and yet we cannot describe it in ter either terms. So the named and the nameless can't be the same thing to our logical mind, and yet somehow we need both concepts to, to get at what is being spoken about, namely the nameless. Well, we have the same idea here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and so it's somehow uh, not quite the same thing, but the word was God. Now, what is God? Well, in all, uh, uh, in all traditions, God, the ultimate God, is that which you cannot know directly. You cannot know as an object. God has no attributes. God has no limits, no boundaries. We could use the word void, as, the, as Lao Tzu did. The void meaning not void of blankness, but without any, uh, any limits in it, any boundaries, anything that you could get your, sink your teeth into or define. The Sufis say that uh, whatever you can imagine, God isn't. 
This is a teaching for a practice, by the way. It's not just a theological teaching. You start trying to imagine God. <clears throat> Whatever you imagine, you reject. That's not God. And you keep on going until you run out of imagination. So somehow in here, we have the, the God that is, uh, that no one has ever looked upon, as it's expressed in the Bible, and expressed actually later on right in this uh, gospel, whose face no one has ever seen. Because as Meister Eckhart said, you know, some people think you're going to see God as I see you face to face, but that's not true, because God and I, we are one. In the East, they express the same idea of the uh, the eye cannot see itself, or the sword cannot cut itself. The sword can cut everything, but it cannot cut itself. God cannot be known as an object. doesn't mean God cannot be known, but it's not this sort of knowledge. So there are these two aspects. We might say today, uh, in our terms, that God is that absolute consciousness, that consciousness which modern physics, quantum mechanics, tells us cannot be left out of any coherent description of the universe. As Oppenheimer said, no electron is an electron until it is observed, until it enters consciousness. Nothing manifests until it enters consciousness. That's the consciousness we can talk about, that I'm talking about here. We can translate God here as that consciousness that itself has no attributes. And again, you can check this out. This isn't, by the way, some other wooey consciousness. I'm talking about the consciousness that you're perfectly familiar with. What color is it? What size is it? How long is it? You, you check it out. What attribute would you say consciousness has? And we then could translate logos as the power of this consciousness to imagine, to create distinctions. In scientific terms, to determine what's what. I don't want to digress on this too much here, but uh, there's a little experiment done in quantum mechanics, a thought experiment designed to illustrate a point, and that's Schrodinger's cat. Have any of you ever heard of Schrodinger's cat? The experiment, uh, without giving you the scientific background, but the experiment is you put a cat in this cage and you set this uh, quantum process going. And the cat, according to quantum mechanics, oh, you shut the door of the cage. And then according to quantum mechanics, the cat uh, in this cage, I forgot to tell you, in this cage is a little device that cracks a poison bottle. So sometime during, let's say, an hour, Either the poison is released or not, depending on whether uh, this uh, photon is given off, which is a quantum effect. Now, when you shut the door of the cage, quantum mechanics describes the cat as being uh, in a state of coherent superposition. That means, let's say the probabilities here are 50-50, that means the cat is 50% alive and 50% dead. At the same time, it's not... 50%, it's not that the cat is really alive and your chances of finding it alive are only 50%, or that it's really dead and your chances of finding it dead are only 50%. It means that the cat is 50% alive and 50% dead. This is Schrodinger's little device to point up how radical quantum mechanics is. And what determines whether the cat is alive or dead is when you go look at it. And you never see a 50% alive cat and a 50% dead cat at the same time. You see either a, a dead cat or a live cat. You see a, you determine a distinction. What is that power of consciousness that determines a distinction? That brings into effect the great law of logic, A, a or not A. Something can't be A and not A at the same time in our logical conception of things. So in the beginning, there is this ground consciousness that has no attributes, but it has a power. It has a power 
to imagine, to imagine a world. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, it's very interesting. In the Greek, you don't know who's this him being referred to, Logos or God. It's ambiguous and per- purposely so. At this stage of creation, and we're, again, we're not talking about creation in time, we're talking about what is happening in every moment, so to speak, in this eternal now, what is emerging out of this eternal now. We can't yet distinguish between God and Logos, between consciousness and its power of imagination. <coughs> so, But it is through this power that things are made. And all things are made by him, and without him was not anything that made that was made. In the Greek, this without him also has the idea of outside him. So you might read it, all things were made by him, and outside of him was not anything made that was made. There is nothing outside of consciousness. It's, it's not that God stood back as some anthropomorphic great father in the sky and created this thing out there. All this is created in God. So you check this out again. Is there anything outside of consciousness? Now, you might say, well, maybe there's some star billions of light years away that's outside of my consciousness. But already, that star exists as a speculation about a star. It has no other existence at the moment. You may posit something outside of consciousness, which we always do. But truly speaking, in terms of your own personal, most intimate experience, have you ever experienced anything outside of consciousness? Do you suppose anybody ever has? Look at how something uh, happens in consciousness. Let's say right now uh, you're thinking about the eggnog that I promised you after this talk. <coughs> Maybe you're dwelling on the eggnog too much. And now where is the eggnog? The eggnog is a uh, speculation in consciousness based on a memory of what eggnog tasted like. Sometime you had eggnog before. If you've never had eggnog before, you don't know what I'm talking about, you probably aren't speculating on it. And then you will, always being in the now, move into the kitchen, and this eggnog that you had been fantasizing about it will appear in consciousness as a sight sensation, as a touch sensation when you pick it up, as a smell when you raise it to your nostrils, as a taste sensation, and if you drop the glass and it shatters, as a sound sensation. <laughs> and then it'll be gone and it'll be a memory. When we talk about eggnog, as though it were existing someplace, if we watch our own experience very carefully, if we analyze it, we see it's always made up of these varieties of things arising and passing out of consciousness. Eggnog keeps changing its status. Sometimes it's a thought, sometimes it's a memory, sometimes it's a taste, sometimes it's a sight. We use this idea, eggnog, to collect all those things together. It's an image, we use that image, eggnog. This is how we create the world, how consciousness creates the world. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Life here, the Greek uh, word for life being used here is zoe. And there are two Greek words for life used in the Bible, psyche and zoe. And when Jesus says, for instance, that famous passage, you must uh, give up your life to attain eternal life. Whoever hangs on to their, clings to their life, 
will not attain eternal life. He uses psyche for that life that you cling to and zoe for that eternal life. Zoe is not individual life. It's not ego life. Self, selfish life. Psyche is uh, individual ego. Zoe is that life that flows through everything, that animates everything. That is the life and power of consciousness, you might say. And this is the word he uses here. In him was life, not a specific individual life the way we think of it today. Life, the power of life. Creativity, fecundity, all those things. And the life was the light of men. Now, light, we, whenever we run across the word light, we're dealing with an ancient transcultural image. One of the earliest, most archaic, most uh, archetypal images of the divine. How are we going to describe the divine? Light's a little bit like consciousness. Light doesn't have substance. and It has this weird, it has this power to illuminate things. And yet it isn't, a, you know, something you can grab onto and put into a bottle. <clears throat> Light is still weird today, by the way, in spite of all our science. Einstein, after all his work, which was based on the weirdness of light, <clears throat> was asked, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? <clears throat> and he says, I'm going to spend it trying to understand light. And nobody understood light better than Einstein in, in a scientific sense. And Einstein didn't understand light. It was a huge mystery to him. It's a wonderful image and metaphor. Light is what illuminates us that illuminates our path, all those things that come from light. So this life that he's talking about, not the individual life, but you might say the spiritual life, this, the life of consciousness, is our light, is the light that illuminates our life. It's the light of consciousness. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Now, this is first of all, historically true. This is, you know, what the Buddha said after his enlightenment. Notice the use of the metaphor just in that word. His first reaction was, well, great. Now I'm free. Now I understand. But he had no plans to teach. He said, nobody's going to understand this teaching. There's no way to put it into words. And then as the myth goes, the gods came and they begged him to, uh, to go out and expound this teaching. They said, some people will. There's some people will. I just learned recently, he, actually it's a beautiful uh, simile the way this is put. The gods say that uh, there are some people who have uh, lots of dust in their eyes. And most people have lots of dust in their eyes. And they'll never see the light, your light. But some people have little dust. And those are who you should come for. And even if there are very few people who have little dust, the Buddha recognized the justice of this. And so he started the teaching. Now, of course, in the whole cosmological scheme of things in Buddhism as it worked out, uh, no one's barred just because they have a lot of dust this time around, because in their conception, uh, you know, your life, you, you lose a little dust, and in the next life, you lose a little bit more, and you lose a little bit more, and finally, you'll have little dust, and everybody gets liberated in Hinduism, in uh, Buddhism eventually, in Hinduism too. You might say in, in more Western terms, everybody returns to God at the end. And in fact, uh, there have been both Sufis and Christians who have said this. Abin Arabi, uh, who was a great Sufi mystic, was teaching in the context of Islam, where there's the same idea of some sort of ultimate judgment, you know, if you've done bad, you go down there, and if you've done good, you go up there to paradise and drink lots of sweets and play around with young men and women and whatnot. And Abina Rabi said, but the mercy of God, this can't be true. The mercy of God must recall all to God, ultimately. But this idea, and this is historically true, that prophets come, enlightened ones come, awakened ones come, and very few comprehend them, truly comprehend them. Very few. 
It's awfully difficult to understand because it's not complicated. It's because it's so simple. It's so obvious. It's right in front of everyone's nose. But it cannot be talked about, or it can be talked around. It cannot be directly communicated in words. No one can just say, this is the truth, and you go, oh, thank you. If that was true, there'd be no problem. There's a very good reason for it, and it goes back to that idea that God is never an object for you and can never be an object for you. Truth can never be an object for you in the spiritual sense. It has to be discovered within by each one. That's why at the end of his life, the Buddha said, each must struggle for themselves. The Buddhas only point the way. And if you read through the Gospels, interestingly enough, you get uh, read them closely in the tone of Jesus' words and so forth, he gets very frustrated, particularly with Peter. Peter's not too swift, you know. And he's constantly saying, why don't you understand? And interesting, he says, you call me master, but you don't do what I t teach you to do. And what he's teaching them to do is a method so that they can understand. And they're all dazzled with his miracles and his raising the dead and all that. And they drive out demons and they control snakes. And he says, don't, he says, don't be so excited about all that stuff. Don't rejoice over that you can drive out demons and control snakes. This is all low level nonsense. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That you, that you are, uh, your names are part of this logos that is named everything. When he was asked about his miracles, he says, I, my miracles are just to attract attention, basically. And, but people get all excited about these things. Very difficult to understand uh, what is being said here. Also, for another reason, what we would call a psychological reason today, basically, we're afraid. <coughs> to be enlightened is to give up clinging to this little self. To know the boundless self, to know that you are the boundless self, that boundless consciousness, is to surrender the idea that you're a limited, little bounded self, an ego. That looks very much like death. And indeed, much spiritual teaching from a mystical point of view is uh, phrased in that terms, in those terms. You have to die to your old self, to discover the God-self in all traditions. So, the darkness, the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for witness to bear witness of that light that all men through him might believe. <coughs> Quite obviously, our, our gospeler here is talking about John, who was the John the Baptist, who, you know, came before Jesus and said the Messiah is coming. And we don't quite know historically exactly their relationship, but uh, some scholars think that actually Jesus was a disciple of John's originally and then sort of broke away from him. And they, But they remained allies through their life, and at least the Christian partisans at the time were very anxious uh, to convince everybody that their boy was greater than John. They keep saying this. Um, and uh, whether it's true or not, we don't know. Uh, but we can read John in a different way here, or we can read John as every teacher. That any external teacher can only bear witness to that light. Cannot for you be that light. And so John comes along, or any external teacher, and bears witness and is for you an object. But the bearing witness is to turn you back on yourself so that you might believe. And as I say here, from a mystic's point of view, belief is not belief in dogma or doctrine. I don't even use, like to use the word belief. I use the word faith. And faith is necessary and faith has a basis in our own intuition. We hear these words and usually at some point in our lives, if we're not too distracted, they begin to speak to us. They touch something deeper than the logical mind. They awaken something. They have that power. 
But faith in, in a mystical sense is dynamic. And it's the very sort of same faith in a crude way that you use with any teacher. If you want to go learn chemistry at the U of O and you don't know anything about chemistry, you have faith that, uh, uh, you know, Professor, Professor, um, Smith knows chemistry and that chemistry isn't some sort of nonsense. And it means something. And the first day you sit in that class and they're wrapping out little formulas and drawing molecules and stuff and it's all Greek to you and you sit there and you stick with it because you have faith. You can't learn anything without faith. Faith is transmuted into knowledge through the process. It's dynamic. The more you listen to Professor Smith, the more you understand, the more you go to the lab and see, yes, this works, the more you have knowledge and the less you have faith. If you don't have faith at all, you'll never go learn chemistry. You'll say it's a bunch of hogwash. I don't believe it. That's why we don't go to charlatans. We don't have any faith in them. There are doctors running around out here with all sorts of little devices, copper things that will cure you of cancer and whatnot, and most of us, most of the time, don't believe them. We don't have any faith in them. We don't even bother to check them out. Probably rightly so. Some, some things we probably should check out. A good many of them, we don't have time to check out everybody. So this is the same sort of faith here, <coughs> although this is a deeper faith. So this is what a teacher can do, can awaken that faith and then suggest practices and disciplines, all of which aid you in discovering what this light is, this life. He was not that light, but he sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. That light lights everyone who comes into the world. Notice, you're lit with that light when you come into the world. This is why uh, in, in Buddhism in the East, enlightenment is not something that you get outside. It's something already present within you. It's a question of realizing it or recognizing it. There's a wonderful Buddhist uh, tale about this. They say enlightenment is like a gem, a very precious gem that a poor person has sewn into their garment. And they go around, they think they're poor. And they suffer terribly because they're so poor. And all they have to do is discover that they've got this wonderful gem in their garment, and they're wealthy. They didn't acquire anything, they just discovered something about themselves. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Again, in a certain historical sense, uh, Jesus as a realized teacher was also in the world in the flesh as a teacher and the world knew him not. People didn't recognize him. We like to think that we would recognize... If Jesus came today, we'd all recognize Jesus, you know. If there were a, a true spiritual teacher, we'd all recognize. I mean, there must be something about them. You know, they must have halos and radiance, and you must be in their presence, and they just must know. In point of fact, uh, when Jesus came, they crucified him. I mean, most people didn't recognize him at all. And in the Gospels themselves, they... they uh, the ordinary people say to his disciples, why do you listen to that guy? He's possessed of devils. You know, he's a little bizarre, a little bananas. As we often do think of spiritual teachers. The Buddha, they, it was, uh, there were two attempts in the Buddha's life, two assassination attempts. Uh, many people hated the Buddha. They didn't recognize the Buddha. It wasn't that the Buddha walked down and everybody fell at his feet. Very difficult to recognize. But there's another meaning to this as well. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. You were in the world. And the world was made by you, and you don't know yourself. <coughs> Self-knowledge. Know thyself. Key to all spiritual practices from a mystic's point of view. Know thyself. Who are you? It's amazing. I try to spark this question in people. And I am uh, surprised at how little interest people have in who they are. And if I uh, start questioning them and pushing them uh, about who they are, they get very confused. 
but they still don't they still don't really want to look look into it too closely. You don't need me to question and prod you. Who are you? What are you? I mean, strip away all the obvious things like you're a a lawyer or a doctor or a husband or a wife or you know these roles and and so forth. And you're a certain age and this and that. Put yourself on a desert island and get rid of all that instantly. You're no longer any of those things. But then go further. Are you your thoughts? Are you your emotions? Are you your body? It's interesting, you know, your body's, uh, everybody's pretty much convinced they're their body in this culture. And, but you look at a photograph of yourself when you were two years old, you won't recognize yourself as a different body. What body are you? Are you the body you were in two years old? The body you have now? The body you're going to have in seven years? Anyway, you can even look more closely. It gets more and more mysterious. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Again, we can interpret that as the uh, the Jewish people, uh, particularly the Pharisees and so forth, because Jesus did teach within that cosmology. He said, I did not come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. And all through his teachings, he never... Uh, uh, sets himself up to be teaching something radical. Even his two greatest commandments, they ask, uh, they ask, what are the two greatest commandments? He says, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and love thy neighbor as thyself, which are both practices to do, by the way, not something to put on a pedestal and idolize. And these are taken from Deuteronomy. These aren't things that he invented. He just picked out what he thought were the two greatest commandments. What he does come to say is, he says, you fools, you've missed the spirit of the law in your attachment to the letter of the law. You don't understand that uh, it's not a question of whether the cup is clean or not. That's just an outward formal ritual. It's a question of what's in your heart. Because it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you, it's what comes out of your mouth. In other words, your words which are a reflection of what's in your heart. This is was his great uh, lesson. The whole purpose of the law is to give form and shape to God's love. He wasn't a, a revolutionary in the, in, the, in the sense of creating a new cosmology. He came unto his own and his own received him not. But again, this is true of any teacher and it's true of your own self. You've, you've come into this world and you don't receive yourself, your true self. You don't recognize your true self. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. And there are some people, if you receive him, if you recognize this, now he doesn't make you the son of God, children of God. It is this, he gives the key, the clue to this power by which you become a child of God. Now, the Son of God is, is the official title of Jesus, and this whole business of Jesus being some special historical human being, he was special historical in a relative sense, but somehow ultimately different from the rest of us mortals, is nonsense, according to the Gospels themselves. Everyone can know what Jesus knew, can know that they are God or the Son of God in that sense. Everyone has this power. And Jesus says in one of the places, in one of the Gospels, he says again, you know, he's always berating them. He says, you fools, you're all gods. A line that very few Christians talk about. And this is the way it was understood by people like Paul and then even later uh, mystics, again, like Meister Eckhart or whatever. Which were born, uh, even, the, even them that believed on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What is your true birth? Who are you again? Are you really something born of uh, the flesh? Are you born of your own self-will, that psyche will? 
What is your true nature here? To discover your true nature is to be, know yourself, a child of God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And it's always made flesh and dwelling among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of the Father. And the only begotten in the Greek is monogenesis. And it doesn't have this idea of exclusive. It means he's begotten of the Father without a mother, without any duality. It's a self-generation. It's not that Jesus was the only kid on the block, the only prophet on the block. It's Jesus is the only son in the sense of the, of the father. There is no mother that's a, apart from the father. He's not born of two principles. Full of grace and truth. Now, these are two beautiful words here. First of all, grace. Uh, grace is related to gratitude, gratis. And grace in the Greek is the word charis. And it has the sense of this, uh, this free abundance. Uh, there's something that's beyond a, a straight transaction, a duty. It's what's given over and above what is demanded. And it also has the opposite side of the gratefulness, the thankfulness of receiving that. So it has the sense of this inexhaustible outpouring, which is a free outpouring, which has no demand for a return. So to be full of grace is to be full of this uh, just endless giving that isn't looking to getting something back. So this light, this life, the nature of this life is this inexhaustible abundance flowing out. And truth comes here from the, as a translation of the Greek word of Aletheia. That's a very interesting word because Aletheia means not Lethia. Lethia means forgetfulness. In Greek mythology, when a soul died, you'd go and you'd drink from the river of Lethia, forgetfulness, oblivion, <coughs> unconsciousness. So truth means here what is uh, not forgotten, what is remembered. It has nothing to do with our idea of truth of matching some concept uh, to some supposed fact that can't be separated from the concept anyway. It has to do with remembering, and it has to do with something uh, no longer being hidden, because the word came to mean, Aletheia came to mean to be in Greek hidden. So the truth is that which is revealed, which is no longer hidden, which is made known, which becomes obvious and clear. So this principle, this light, which in a certain sense Jesus embodied or realized and then taught, is full of grace and truth. It's full of love and uh, uh, gnosis. It's to know and to love in the fullest, complete and absolute sense. It is to be that consciousness which we have but to look around us and inside us, there's no difference, and see it constantly in the beginning, in every moment, producing, creating this whole wonderful pageant drama that we feel ourselves separate from, in conflict with, threatened by, because we don't know that this is the root of our own nature. This was the gospel, the good news that Jesus was born into the world to testify to. This can be known. This can be revealed. This can be discovered. I have done it. And he never claimed to be able to touch somebody on the head and give them this. He said to Pilate, I come to bear witness to the truth. That's all I basically come for. Everything else is extraneous. All the miracles and all that. <clears throat> so this is what we celebrate 
at least here at Center today, about Jesus. Excuse me, I need to be somewhere. Oh, oh yes. Christmas. Well, Merry Christmas. Glad you could come. Are there any questions or comments? What comes to me is that uh, I went to a Unitarian service yesterday and St. Luke was read, and that was the little story about going in the birth, etc. And I've never thought of this particular passage as applying to Christmas, but I see it now as it's really <clears throat> probably being the gist of the whole thing. Everything else is more... Well, this is one of the things that happens that, to any tradition, any teaching. Uh, it gets translated into more and more concrete sorts of forms, a little dramatic story that at least people can start to relate to. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I talk about a difference between esoteric and exoteric teachings or aspects of a teaching. And sometimes people take that to mean that I frown on exoteric uh, interpretations. But I don't. You, they're absolutely necessary. Every time you open your mouth, you're making an exoteric interpretation. It's just that we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that that isn't the be-all and end-all. You start with a little story like that, you know? And then you're led to deeper and deeper uh, meanings and interpretations. This is why John is usually considered, even in Christianity, the most mystical of the Gospels, and in some sense the most difficult. It's, you know. Because it requires the sense of looking at things that many of us are not used to. Exactly, exactly. Good question, Joel. Uh, you know, given that there was this whole, the whole mystical part of, I mean, of, of Jesus and just how he was commenting to all of the... Uh, you know, his disciples, that they weren't really getting it. How, how did, um, where did Christianity sort of switch in a way to become just, you know, more exoteric as opposed to esoteric? Where did it sort of just, again, fall into being law-oriented as opposed to, you know, losing its mystical root? It's a, it's a question really for, for a historian. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've, I'm an amateur at uh, this business, so I know a little something about it and can make a, a guess, as all historians do. Um, but let me say, first of all, that it's not specific to Christianity. Uh, it's true of Eastern religions, which we, uh, which we take to be extremely esoteric, partly because we get the creme de creme of the teaching. I'll tell you a quick little story. When I was in Thailand uh, many years ago, uh, I was um, uh, on R&R, from the army, and in those days you hired a cab driver like a chauffeur. You hired a cab driver for the whole week, and he came to your door, and he took you around places, and uh, he also got, uh, obviously, kickbacks from various places, so he was always trying to take me to places that GIs went, and I wasn't so interested in going to those places. I was more interested in going to things like Buddhist temples and whatnot, and not because I was particularly uh, spiritual in those days, but I just, uh, you know, I knew something about Thailand. I heard about the temples and whatnot. So he, that was fine with him. He started taking me to all these temples. And they were like uh, Ivy League colleges. They were beautiful manicured grounds and, and beautiful buildings with uh, wonderful artwork. And there were these uh, monks going around in saffron robes. And you'd see them through the windows studying, you know, devoutly. And it was all very quiet and... Great. And we're driving along one day, and there was this temple in the, in the slums. And I said, what's that? And he says, oh, that's number 10 temple. I said, I want to go there. He says, no, no, it's number 10. No, no. Well, as these things went, I had to fight with him and argue with him, and I had to make a bargain with him. I had to go see his snake farm in the country, and he would take me to this number 10 temple. So we went to the snake farm. That was interesting, too. But we got to this temple. Now, this temple was, uh, I mean indistinguishable from a, let's say, a Catholic church in a Mediterranean country. I mean, there, there was full of weeping women who were praying for their children and lighting candles to the Buddha and buying incense. There were priests with their hands out. They'd bless you. would walk around and, and they'd, you know, for a donation. I mean, it was pandemonium, you know? None of this quiet, serene, con contemplative atmosphere. And Buddhist cosmologies, uh, among the people are full of gods and demons and superstitions and rites and rituals and, you know, the whole business, exorcism and whatnot. It's not just Christianity. It is true that in the East, the traditions 
uh, even at the exoteric level, have tended to retain their understanding that there is this uh, uh, apex to which they're pointing. That, for instance, in India, no matter how uh, exoteric your tradition, you know, there is the idea that you, there are enlightened people. And that ultimately that's sort of the goal of everybody, even if this isn't the goal in your lifetime, you know what I mean? Well, in Christianity, that did get lost to a large extent. Uh, people were around mystics, and mystics kept trying to revive that, but that did get lost. One of the peculiarities of Christianity, uh, historically, and I'm not saying this is the only cause, but the reason Christianity took a, uh, a quite, uh, ended up with a quite political role, which influenced this, was that Christianity um, came into being and organized as a church during the period of the collapse of the Roman Empire. And uh, Christianity, the Christian communities had educated people, they were organized, they were together and so forth. The Roman Empire was falling about around their, uh, falling apart around them. And they were literally in some cases drafted to run things because they were the only, uh, they had the educated people and they had the uh, organizational experience. There's a famous uh, letter from one of the later emperors, I've forgotten which one it is, Julian or somebody, who, uh, after a period of plagues and devastation and, and you know, uh, barbarian invasions all through uh, Spain, sent letters out drafting the local bishops to take over the government because there was nobody to run the governments. So the bishops became the governors. So the church uh, inherited this uh, political, this... Uh, this society that was crumbling apart and all this chaos, and it fell upon the church to organize some sort of um, society out of that. And uh, it's not a, a question of greedy popes or something, you know, or let, let's put it that way. That's not the complete story. It's also a question of the historical task fell to the church. There was nobody else around capable of doing. In many cases, they weren't anxious to assume those roles. Now, later the church uh, did, uh, you know, become very corrupt, the, the hierarchies, towards the, the Middle Ages, the middle of the Middle Ages, you know. And then there was the Reformation and everything else, and, you know, Christianity split apart and fell apart itself. Uh, so, but we shouldn't, you know, we, should, we really should, before we go and judge what happened, we should really try and investigate and see Put ourselves in, in those positions, you know. Uh, this is not in any way to excuse or defend things like the Inquisition or whatnot. But we are so spoiled in this culture, uh, and we may shortly be not so spoiled. We just can't imagine what it would be like to live in a society where the where the you know the government is falling apart, where there are barbarian war bands roaming around. I sometimes try to make it the point, you know, it'd be like. Uh, you know, groups of hell's angels. There was no police, no mayor, and groups of hell's angels just would come through and come into your community and do whatever they wanted, you know? I mean, it was kind of like that. You'd be, uh, anybody who could pull together a community and organize the defense and, you know, would be very, um, received with a lot of gratitude. As a case, one specific example of Augustine, who wanted to be a contemplative after his, uh, at least, Gnostic Flash's conversion. His, he had plans to return to, he had been in Rome, he had plans to return to Africa and set up a little contemplative community and spend the rest of his life in contemplation and meditation and prayer and things like that. And he went to a church in um, uh, one of the North African churches in a big city and they didn't have a priest. And he agreed to give the Sunday sermon. And in those days, a priest, the important thing with a priest was had to be an educated person. They couldn't just anybody be, they had to do, you know, administrative duties they had. And uh, they gave, he gave the sermon and the par parishioners locked the door and refused to let him leave and drafted him to be their priest. And he wept because th there went his life as a contemplative monk. Now he still managed to write lots of great works afterwards and so forth. But, you know, this was, the, you got to put yourself somewhat in those, in that situation in the times. They were desperate sorts of times. You know, if, if I may say something, I, um, in the 40s I was uh, attending a grade school, a Roman Catholic grade school, and the nuns taught us a catechism, and we were taught 
questions and answers that we had to memorize, and I don't have those all memorized, but I remember the phrase, the beatific vision, and it used to strike me as, what kind of punishment is that just because you don't see the beatific vision? What does it matter? But now, as I'm, uh, you know, 50-some years later, here I am learning what the beatific vision is and what they meant, but I don't know that the nun knew when she was That's the problem. words were there. That's the problem. The whole esoteric thing is right there, but it's in the exoteric setting. If there's no one there to explain what the words mean, the words just become words that you repeat and, you know, because your parents did it, your forebearers did it. Yeah, but people could explain that to me all day long and until just a few years ago, I would have had no... I just well, but there's, there's, <laughs> there's a certain ripeness in people's lives that I always telling Jennifer, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And, and this is true, and rightly so. It's no good, you know, for somebody else's, to have somebody else's truth. You have to find the truth for yourself. That's how it's your truth. So, uh, Muhammad, you know, he was, all through the Quran, God is always telling Muhammad, look, your job is just to deliver the message. I guide, Allah speaking, I guide who I will and who I won't, you know. And you could see, again, Muhammad's tremendous frustration. He'd be out there trying to deliver the message, and they thought he was bananas too in the beginning. And Allah keeps saying, no, you just delivered, just deliver the message. Don't worry about anything else. Let me take care of the rest of the thing. <laughs> Anybody else? Okay, well, that's my talk for this morning. So you're welcome to stay and have some tea and check out the library. <laughs>